Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. I haven't gotten to say that yet, yet this morning. Um, I've had a record number of people tell me they were praying for me this morning. Uh, I'm not sure what that's about, um, but it, I appreciate it. Uh, we're talking about joy this morning and humility, and those are things we certainly need um, help from the Spirit to understand, and it really does, um, it really does mean a lot, uh, those comments. Um, the boost feels like we're all in this together. Um, we're learning something, and I just want to say that all those comments are appreciated. I know that Charles, your senior pastor, would uh, certainly appreciate those comments as well. Uh, I want to take before reading this passage just uh, a little point of personal privilege. This passage is kind of special to me and my wife. Uh, our oldest son is named Iker, and uh, that name means the visitation, and it is a reference to this story about when Elizabeth visited Mary and uh, John the Baptist leapt in her womb. And we named him that because of the joy he was to us and in hopeful anticipation of his own joy at the coming of the Lord. And that is my hope for all of us in here, too, that it was, we, we read this, that this joy truly would be infectious um, at the gift that Jesus is presenting before us. So that being said, let's go to our passage and I will read it. This is Luke 1, 39 through 56. And this is God's word. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he who has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things to me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We pray for us. Father, indeed, we humbly ask that you would uh, work through your spirit this morning, that we would understand this joy, understand your action, um, and the good news uh, that is being proclaimed through your word. Um, May we indeed be caught up in it and overwhelmed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're talking about joy this morning humility and joy, as you see in the title. And I want to start us off by asking, when the last time was that you experienced pure joy? Like, not just a happy moment, but the kind of joy where you were just completely lost um, in the joy of the moment. There were no inhibitions. 
uh, you were just overwhelmed with this feeling of joy. I, I, I thought about it a little bit. I could think of um, just a few moments, but I saw it recently, very clearly, uh, a few weeks ago. Then um, Lauren and I, Lauren's dad, uh, got a hold of this electric motorbike thing um, that was I was big enough to carry me, like I could sit on it and run around. Um, but all the kids rode it, and they were going crazy um, with laughter around this big field. Uh, my youngest son, Emmeth, who, and you have to understand that Cleggs are famous for not showing emotion, particularly the emotion of joy. Um, they're about as even keeled as they come. My youngest son is about the far opposite of that, um, as can be. Uh, but he was too young to ride on this motorcycle, so my mother-in-law got on with him and put him on it, and off they go, and they are tearing around the field. And when they came around and we could see his face, I couldn't possibly recreate this face that he was making, but it was something like this. <laughs> I mean, his hair was rolling back, his mouth was wide open, and it's like he was so excited he couldn't contain himself, and it was... Um, it, was, it was just coming out of him. And it was so infectious. Like, that's the thing about it. It was fun for us just to see that kind of joy. And when we see that kind of joy happening in other people, it does something in us that we, we long for it. We, we recognize that as good, and we want to feel that in and of ourselves. And that's because, you know, as our lives, and really from beginning to end, um, are filled with a search for joy. That comes easy for us. Some, it's easier for some of us than others of us. But from the time we wake up in the morning to the cup of coffee that we have uh, that gets us started, um, through the morning routine of picking out what we're going to wear, about is this going to be a good hair day or a bad hair day, and that is going to dictate how my day is going to go, how I will, much I will be respected or not respected. Um, successful I will be until we end the day with a glass of wine. It is a day that is full of this pursuit of joy in one way and the other. And in the middle of those things, in between the morning routine and the end, the Netflix binge at the end of the day, then there, there is this period of grind um, where we especially feel the effects of the, of the curse and joy is hard to come by. Uh, because it is full of things like um, stress. It is full of things like a lack of personal space, where you go into the bathroom to do nothing else but sit on your phone for a few minutes just so that you can be alone. And I know you all do that. Um, it's, it's the kind of thing where we, you know, here's where people like uh, Marie Kondo come in, come in handy, uh, the, the magic art of tidying up. Um, where when our, uh, we have too much clutter through the day, then if we, what we need to do is, is purge and get down to the things that really bring us the most joy. And it's really helpful advice. Like this is a way that we get through trying the day in the grind, in the clutter, trying to maximize our joy. Um, I think Tish Warren was really helpful for this, the Liturgy of the Ordinary. Uh, we have lots of just daily stuff that we've got to do that are mundane and that they're not fun. But now she helped us see, and through these things, through the liturgies, how they point to something else. But what these things illustrate is that, that and I want you to think about how many, how many books you've read, how many times that you have reorganized 
and repurpose your life and thought that this time the joy is going to come and this time that it is going to be full. And we, I bet if you're anything like me, you have done it again and again and again and are probably going to do it again and again and again all the more. Um, because it is as ever-present, unending pursuit of trying to find joy, trying to overcome these barriers to joy, um, trying to find it in the midst of, and hold on to it in the midst of the effects of the curse. And that in itself goes even without saying the more deceptive or manipulative or harmful or even violent ways um, that we can use and abuse others and God's creation to try to get joy. Um, even society is structured in some ways. I was reading Wendell Berry recently. He was arguing that even racism probably has its roots not first in hatred of other people, but a desire for, to do to get more money for less work, to delegate to other people the hard parts and the grind so that, so that another group um, could have more time and leisure. And that becomes a justification for using other people. And so we have this pursuit of joy, and, and it is marred and is difficult in um, all kinds of ways that are affected by the curse that are both outside of us and inside of us. We exist in this world, and we are still enveloped in this pursuit. And I think we would all recognize uh, that this is a pursuit that is unending. Joy tends to be occasional, partial, and fleeting, um, and it is always just outside of our grasp. And that's where I give this long introduction to set that up, even as way of application. Because when we, when we look at a story like this and we see all of this joy, like there, these are three characters, one who's even not even born yet, who are beside themselves with joy. And as we are in the middle of this search for us and this unsettled restlessness and we want it very badly, then it makes this stand out. And it makes, us, it, makes it infectious. It makes us desire this and be curious um, what this is about and what it is like. And what I want us to do is to not push that away, but really hold on to that, to use that curiosity to draw us into the text here and to be curious about what God is doing. And I'm going to attack it in this way. Um, joy is what I want to talk about, but it's one of those things, if we, if we look directly at it, it kind of goes away because it ends up being a byproduct of other things. And it is linked so inseparably from God's action here. So I'm going to look first, look at God's action, but through it, we're always going to consider um, this aspect of joy as we do it. So first, I'm just going to ask real simply, what, did, what does God do here? What are his actions? What does it mean as how we should interpret it? And then how does it give us joy uh, right where we are? Uh, that's where we're going. So let's just look at what does God do here. And on the surface, this is really simple. If we backed up in context, we saw this last week, um, that the main thing that God does is these two women, um, he told them that they are going to have babies and that they become pregnant. One of them is Elizabeth. She is elderly. She is too old to have a child and very much longs to have one. And Mary is very, very young. She's engaged to be married. She probably doesn't want a child yet. And yet... Um, um, by virtue of the Holy Spirit, um, she conceives and bears a son and gets this promise that this son is not only going to be of just any other baby as a gift, but that this is going to be the savior of the world. That this is going to be a king who is going to sit on the throne of David forever and ever and ever, and his throne will never end. 
that there is something very big going on here that, that God is up to in the gift of these babies in, in revealing His kingdom that it is coming um, and identifying His king, um, the one who is going to bring it to bear. And I th- that's where it will be tempting in the first place to immediately jump and ask what this means because we start talking about Jesus on the throne of David and we, you know, what does that mean? And we could have a theological discussion here. But I, I, the thing I really want to point out here, and we're going to get to that, is something else that is just a little bit more on the surface and a little bit more sub- subtle. What I want you to notice is the, the generous attention that God gives to these two individuals. And if you think about it, he's up to something. He is, he is crying out, uh, witnessing to this coming kingdom. But, and he could have done that by just shouting it out on high to everybody. But he doesn't do that. And we might say, well, maybe it's mostly the Jewish people who would care mostly. So surely it would come through the synagogues. It would have come through the preacher. It would have come through to the group of people. It doesn't come that way. Is that he sees the plight of two individual people. One has a clear sorrow and a longing for a child. And the other one, Mary, even though she is still young, we see some, you know, we think about who Mary is, that she is not, doesn't have the highest standing of people in society. Due to her age, due to her gender, due to her economic level, um, she is, you might say, of the humble estate in this day according to the way that life went. And God saw these things. He saw them personally, and he saw them individually. And his generosity, that en route to bringing in, ushering in this kingdom of God, he chose to bring, to use the longings of these individuals to give them good stuff. And through that, he was going to accomplish his purpose. And I want us to notice that before we go any further, because when you you think about your own life, your own desires, your own longing for joy, to just to ask, what is God like? Does he see you where you are? Does he see the longing? Does he see me as an individual? And when he sees it, is he the kind of God who is generous or the kind of God that is stringing me along and keeping me down? God sees individuals, and he is abundantly generous God. That's what he does. These are just the bare, these are the actions of what God does for his people. And so we're led then to ask the next question, what does this mean? You know, actions are nothing without uh, interpretation. And this, thankfully, most of our text is an interpretation of what this means, Um, Mary in particular. But before we get there, just notice... Um, we get a clue in the very beginning uh, that you might not um, have noticed otherwise that Mary it goes on this journey and she greets Elizabeth, who's a relative. We don't know exactly how she's uh, related to her, but she's certainly older than her. And age gives you more honor in the society. And what we would have expected was a long, elaborate greeting for Mary to give to Elizabeth, to honor Elizabeth as her elder relative. And we, it says that Mary greets her, it doesn't say what, but what the text wants us to see is that almost the reverse of that happens is that Elizabeth, the elder, even by, with help of the Holy Spirit, because even her, through herself it wasn't enough, gives a lavish blessing on Mary, the younger, and raises her up 
um, and gives her, bestows on her honor. And so we see that there's a kind of inversion going on here in some of these social dynamics, and it becomes even more clear when we look at Mary's song. And, and it's these beautiful words, she talks about the Lord, the, um, uh, that she rejoices in God her Savior. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord uh, because he has looked on his servant in hum- the humble estate of his, of his servant. Um, and from now on, all generations is gonna, are going to call her blessed. And so we have this, of the, this, this person of a humble estate uh, being raised up and given honor. And we go on further. Start, she starts to say things like, um, the mighty are brought down, the humble are exalted, uh, the pride, the proud are scattered uh, in their thoughts, the hungry are filled, the rich are sent away. And the effect of this is what we see that there is there's this kind of Inversion that's going on here, that it, it happens in the heart. It penetrates all to the heart, but it also extends much wider than that. Even to the aspects of the way that society was structured, that it even was going to penetrate those things and to turn them on their head and make them different uh, than they are. And before I move on, I want to point out just how certain this is going to be. She speaks of this as if it's in the past tense. So just on the fact that there was a conception that happened here, uh, that she is carrying Jesus in her womb, that that has started this chain of events, that it is so certain, even though it's not complete yet, even though her life is not going to look drastically different, socially speaking, um, and not totally until the end of time, but it is so certain to happen that it is like she can speak of it as if it's in the past tense, as if it's already happened. So what we see here, that God, what God is doing, what it means that he sent um, Jesus through Mary, is that he is turning an upside-down world on its head, and he is turning it right side up. And to help us unpack this, I want to give an illustration. You might have seen it. It, it popped up on some random social media feed. But I saw a story this week of a scientist in Austria who did an experiment where he he had got his subject, and he put lenses on him um, that would turn the world upside down, so just to see what would happen. Uh, so he wore these things all the time. Uh, everything was upside down, and at first, he couldn't do anything. Uh, he said he was freaked out when, like, there would be a cup of water or, you know, someone pouring water because his impulse would be that this is about to spill. But after 10 days, he was able to ride a bike, he was able to navigate um, a busy street, in and out cars. He was able to function as if it was normal. When he took the goggles off, it took him multiple hours before his vision would then correct itself um, and that he could see things right side up again. And what's the point of this? Somewhere along the line, the world that we live in, the world that we understand, got turned upside down. And that the the way that it was designed, the way it was intended to function, was turned on its head by people. And that has become so normal, that is all we know. This is the kind of world where pride is valuable, uh, where a selfish, motivated mentality is the norm, a competitive mentality is the norm. It's the kind of thing where... um, 
of using the things that God has given for my benefit and my joy is normal. Uh, that's how life functions. We don't even understand the breadth of how we function this way. But it is so normal that we see things this way. And the pursuit of joy is it's really upside down, and we don't even know it. And what Jesus has come to do here, as revealed in these words, is that he is turning the world right side up again. And it doesn't totally make sense to us how humility is more valuable, how serving others is more valuable than taking, how giving is better than receiving, how stewardship is better than having a lot of these things. And it seems to us like that is upside down, oftentimes. But Christ is proclaiming that the way the world originally was designed, the world that rebelled against him, um, we who rebelled against him and rebel against him every day, that his agenda is to turn it back right side up. And joy now is attached to the orientation of that world. It is attached to the right side up world. It is not attached to the debt to the upside down world anymore. That's what this means. And I want to, um, from there, I want to transition into the last point, because this is all good and conceptual. But I really want to drill in here and ask this question that, what does this mean for us? Since this is about characters, these are about particular events long ago. And how does this help our joy increase now in the moment? And as I get there, I want to say something about how we apply this. Uh, because we aren't married. And we are not Elizabeth in this story. And there is no guarantee that their story is going to be our story. In fact, it, in fact, it will not be because it's their story. It is, not, it is not our story. And what do we do with that? Especially what do we do with that when we want children very badly? Uh, when we uh, regret the way that our lives are going? How frustrating they can be when we feel disrespected and those kinds of things. And here, again, she is very helpful where she talks about herself, of how she has been blessed uniquely and individually by God. But then she spreads it out, and she says in verse 50, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. And then in the end, verses 54 and 55, that God, in doing this to her, God has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy, as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. So the uniqueness of Mary and Elizabeth's story is tied to the bigger story of what God is doing in turning this world right side up that he has done through his people, through Abraham. And that includes us. If you are a Christian, it means you are a child of Abraham, a member of the people of God. And that these events to Mary and Elizabeth have been carrying on this story so that the blessing would continue and it would come to you. Although in a different story, just as uniquely, with God's attention to you just as much as to them, and with his disposition just as generous, even if it looks in a different way. This was a blessing that was always supposed to come through Abraham, uh, that would go to all nations, uh, that because of the rebellion, the upside-down nature of even the hearts of God's own people, it's like that pipe that was supposed to carry water and bless people, it kept getting clogged up. 
And so the people of God were self-focused rather than um, other-focused, participating in the upside-down world rather than the right-side-up world because their hearts were upside-down and not right-side-up. And what Jesus did is not leave them there, but it's like the great roto-rooter in the sky, the great drain-pipe snake has come and it is, he has broken through the clog. And it's not only that, but the blessings are mediated now through, Abraham, through Jesus, the son of Abraham, the heir to David's throne, and through him, the blessing comes to each and every one of you. So even though your story is different, it, God's attention to you is just as particular. His plans for you are just as good, and he is just as generous. And that's how we think of ourselves here. And so I think this leaves us really two options as we are faced with the upside-downness of life as we seek to apply it to, to ourselves. Uh, one option is this. We can continue to hold on to the upside-down world and call that good. And this is characterized by all of those things we read in the Confession of Sin uh, that really did a good job of laying out all of these characteristics. It is we can continue to persist and say that I think I will get more if I get mine and not if I will give up. And that's one option. And it often comes much more subtly than that. That's very brazen. It's like we recognize that Jesus has come, that he has brought this kingdom to bear um, through himself, and we say, that's good. And I think I can get just a little bit, um, just a little bit more through this embrace of this other person or through this yet another glass of wine, or something like that. And that's one of our options. But because of what Jesus has done, what that means is, is that this, since Jesus has come to invert this world, then that way of living is on borrowed time, and it will not work out. It will not deliver the promises um, that it makes. It can't do it. And the taste that we get of frustration are going to be further confirmation of those things. That this is a force fit. This doesn't go with the design of what God has made, his world, how he has made his world to function. There's another option here, and that other option is not to turn ourselves right side up, because nobody has ever been able to do that. Is that when we are faced with the upside downness of the world, the, the sorrow, the lack of joy, the frustration, that we want to go away, that we want to replace with joy. It is rather than calling it good, then we can embrace it for what it is and name it for what it is, that this is wrong. This is upside down. This is not right. This is not right around me, and this is not right in here. But to bring it to Jesus, the only one who is able to turn things right side up, and flipping metaphors, it's like, when we you know, experience that, like bringing Jesus, this, this not, you know, bringing him our empty bucket and saying, my bucket is totally empty and I have no joy and I need joy and I need joy generously. And what our lives look like mostly is some of getting by and doing the things that we need to do. We're so stressed um, just maintaining life that joy is not really always on, it, sometimes it's not even on our top of our priority list. Like we would almost like give it up if we could just have security and stability 
and live kind of a neutral life. And there's, so we feel kind of guilty about that uh, a little bit. Some of us, because of our personalities or because of our sorrows, then, then we just look inside and say there's not a lot of joy there. Um, there's just a lot of bitterness, and there's a lot of criticism. And these are the kinds of things that spill out um, when I'm not paying attention. And they're the events of life, the sorrows that happen, um, that the tragedies that seem to rob us and take our joy away. What I was saying is when, when we're, we're confronted by these and we have this internal struggle and we have this, these internal doubts and a noticeable lack of joy, and those will be there. But with this, with what Christ has done, rather than those being confirmation um, that joy will not come, those are the things that end up bringing us to Jesus. These are the things that actually can serve to magnify what Christ has done to do to, to, for you. It can magnify the fact that he has paid attention to you in your suffering and your sorrow. It can magnify um, the reality that he has come to give and he has come to give himself abundantly and it will all be his doing. And so rather than driving us to despair, that those things can actually drive us to Jesus to hand him the bucket and ask him to fill us up, that he can give us joy. And that is the case. When we see Jesus' attention to us, when we see his generosity, when we see his unique power, uh, his certainty of what he has done, and his unique desire to be with us and to provide, then joy is one of those things um, that just tends to come out. And so what I want to challenge us all this week to do is to ask, uh, O heart, where is thy joy? Uh, even as we celebrate the Christmas season. If you use these and thous, then it'll pay attention to you more than, than otherwise. But ask yourself, where is your joy? What has taken it away and where is the frustration? But at the same time, ask the Spirit that He would help you in your despair to run to Him and to in faith to trust and to ask, would you, in your generosity, um, give it to me? And would you fill me up that I might have... Um, a great, great joy. I'll leave you with that. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, would you send your spirit in all of us, in our cravings for joy, in our guilt that surrounds us, in our restlessness, um, in our wanderings, in our sleepless nights. Would you lead us there? And as we suffer with these things, would you lead us to yourself? Would you give us the meaning of your son in that place uh, that we would be able to entrust ourselves with you and have joy um, in your generosity towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.